Welcome back to the One Link Podcast. We're jumping back in to episode two of the Old Timer series, or the Founder series, as I decided to call it. We ended the last episode talking with John about how he started and grew as a campus minister. Today, let's jump back into Bob's story. If you remember, the place we left Bob was with orders to Vietnam. Not a very good place to leave him. But we'll pick up with his story there. And then I got orders for Vietnam. Sandy went back to OU to finish her college degree, and I went to Vietnam. And I was there better part of a year. When I was there, Max Barnett and, as you mentioned, Brett Yon, a couple other guys made a trip up through Kansas, Nebraska, Iowa, and Missouri. And they were looking at opportunities to begin full-time campus ministers ministries. Well, Max wrote me and asked me if, if I'd pray about moving back to Kansas State. Well, since I was acquainted with it, with my stint in the Army, and Sandy was too, it was kind of like a no-brainer to us. Uh, God had worked in our lives, and we prayed about it, but felt real peace that that's where we God wanted us to go. Before we leave your Army days, I just want to ask this. What was it like? What was it like ministering in the Army as a signal officer do you have opportunities to disciple guys, opportunities to share? How did that look? Yeah, that's pretty rough for me. The good part about it is I needed all the props kicked out from under me. All of my campus ministry friends, church life, there was no one month after month after month. So all of my Christian props were knocked out from under me. In Vietnam, the guys I worked with, most of them had venereal disease. They would open up the gates a couple times a week, and, and these young Asian prostitutes would come in. And I had determined that I was going to stay pure for Sandy, and, and God allowed me to be that. I'd look around on the floor, on the grounds, walking across the compound, see these little vials of empty heroin that were scattered all over. The guys could get a hit for a dollar, two dollars, have a prostitute for two dollars. At one time, I had a bunch of guys working for me. Every one of them was on penicillin for venereal disease. I think God used all that to really be sure that the stakes were driven deep in my life. I remember one time going out and sitting in a in a Jeep. I was working all night, about three in the morning, and just had tears in my eyes because I didn't feel like I was doing anything for God. You know, I tried to witness to a few people, but I felt totally stuck spiritually. But I continued to read my Bible. I continued to learn verses. I I worked 12 hours every day for seven months for and never a day off, ever. And so I didn't have a lot of time, but I just set aside that time with God. And I decided that that night in that Jeep, with tears coming down my eyes, that I wanted my life to count. And that was a real hallmark decision for me. I've never turned back on it. And following that, I got the letter from Max uh, with the invitation for us to consider going up to Kansas State after I got back from Vietnam. 
Cool. So you got back from Vietnam, you move up to Manhattan. Was there a campus ministry already going or were you launching from like, it's you and Sandy, here you go? Yeah, there, they had a volunteer work going. There was a few students around, not many. But I remember walking across campus the first day, Brett, Mary, Jan, we, we moved in a U-Haul truck. His stuff was in the front of it. My stuff was in the rear, came up, dropped Sandy and I off, and then they went on up to Lincoln. And I remember the next day walking across campus and just asking God what he wanted to do. And, and I, I believe he led me to pray for six people that first year three men and three women that really wanted to grow. And, you know, you wouldn't have to hand lollipops to to show up at meetings, but that was their heart. And at the end of that first year, there were six. So we built our, our lives around those six people. And you'd, and have, been, I, you'd have been like 24, 25, 26? correct. Yeah, 24. Yeah, we began to just pour our lives to them. You know, I'd lead the a Bible study. Sandy would lead one, and those would be in it, and they were learning. And then we let them go the next semester, and we'd meet for dinner. We operated out of our little condo, and everything happened there or on campus. We didn't have a you know a building or anything, so so we just learned early on to to be on campus, and that's what we did. And God began to to grow in that ministry, grow that ministry. So in your first year there, what was, what was the kind of vision that you had? I know you mentioned that you wanted at least six students, but did you kind of have like a year goal, a five-year goal, a 10-year goal? What was, what was, what was it like? And how did you and Sandy kind of just run that race? Yeah, that's a good question. I wasn't that sophisticated, Tyler. I wasn't even sure that I was cut out to really do this. I mean, as everyone does at times when you have a major transition, well, I I felt I could, but but the key for me is I leaned into God a lot. And I remember thinking on that same walk across campus that second day that I didn't have within my resources. I was shy. I was an introvert. I was an average student. You know, I wasn't like a knockout personality. And, it, and it, I ended up during that walk just really smiling because I knew down deep that if anything happened, God would have to get the credit. And so I just felt so free in that. I, you know, my plan was to invest deeply in a few such that they in turn could could disciple others. So I was looking two to three generations past those six. And that was about as far as I could look. And that began to happen toward the end of that first year. In the second year, those six were still shaking and moving, and they each had one or two. And so by the end of the second year, we had 20 people that were really serious about God. We had others that were around, and then it just continued to grow from there. God gave us some really great people. And I know a lot of ministries, they have to look around and try to find people that have that heart, but God just blessed us with that. How long would you say it was until you'd say that culture of like, we're, we, we make disciples, that's what we do. 
how long was it till you're like, okay, this is kind of established? Pretty quick <laughs> because uh, that was what we were doing. And we weren't shy about doing a Bible study on the Great Commission. People saw Sandy and me doing it. And we didn't necessarily have a bunch of nomenclature for it. We just did it. And, and we would address what Jesus did. It wasn't like I was teaching a bunch of classes on it. It was just people followed us around. They were in our home. That's what we prayed about. We opened the Bible, and that's what we talked about. So I would say by the end of that first year, those six and maybe a, three or four others were really on board with what we believe God wanted us to do. I love that story of just the simplicity of the way they started their ministry at Kansas State. You know, today, Kansas State is one of the largest campus ministries, at least in the Midwest. I mean, it's really rolling. And when you think about it, Bob, with all of his humility, he just talks about starting with six students. That's a beautiful and brilliant place to start, in my opinion. Now let's jump back over into John's story, and let's hear what God's doing with him. So then where, you know, you're, you're the campus minister for 12 years. At what point in time did you start thinking about missions? Had that been like rolling since Arizona State, or where did this kind of international missions idea begin to percolate yeah. uh, in your soul? Yeah, uh, that was uh, in the uh, summer of 1991, actually, probably the fall at fall conference in 1990 i'm pretty sure it was jeff lewis spoke and was telling us about this big festival that the what was then the foreign mission board is now international mission board was going to be having in kazakhstan and they were looking for students to be a part of that they had they had about 300 people that were going to be participating so they had business guys they had women who are hairdressers and quilters and all kinds of things, and just to ask if I might be interested in going. And so in the summer of 1991, went to Kazakhstan. I had no idea where Kazakhstan was. I didn't know anything about it, but we had a great experience there during the, during the summer. I took some students with me. Then when we got back that next fall, Things fell apart with the old Soviet system, and now we all knew about Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan, all of the Stans that had been a part of the Soviet system. So I came back that first year thinking, really not understanding much of the way God works, or it just didn't register with me. I was afraid. I was wanting to go back because they were going to do the festival again in 92. And I had already asked about going back. But when the Soviet system fell, I didn't think they would have the festival. But they did. And we went back in in 92. Those were really the only two times. I had taken a, a mission trip of sorts to Jamaica earlier while we were still in Wichita. But we'd worked with children. We did a little bit of preaching, some things like that. Nothing like this. When we were in Kazakhstan in 1992, there were less than 10 known Kazakh Christians. 
I'd not really heard anything at that point about the 1040 window or any of that kind of thing. So while we were there, I came back pretty motivated, pretty challenged, but also pretty discouraged because in those days, there were no invitations for students to do work among their peers, certainly not in the 1040 window and mostly not anywhere. Student summer missions were a lot of children's work, a lot of construction work, a lot of youth work, but university students were not part of the strategy for, for missionaries. And mostly projects were a week or two weeks long and university students were a headache. They come in, came in with a kind of a bad attitude. Well, they didn't have a bad attitude. They wanted to do their thing. And so I just began to write some letters, make some phone calls, try to gather information. My thought was, if there's a way that students could go and work with people already, workers that were already on the field who had a heart for university students, not American students, but for university students where they were serving, maybe there'd be a way that we could we could partner with them and serve in a way that invested in university students. Why from your end, like why was it so important for you? I know you're working with university students in America, but why did, why did you have the focus on the university students over there? Well, I think university students are right for the gospel. It's been said that, that people who are in a state of change are ripe for the gospel. So you see, you see refugees and they're just needy. But there were some other things too. One was, generally speaking, in those days, it was pretty easy access to students, especially in China, but other places where we, where we had worked, Kazakhstan, very easy access in those days, a lot of them in one place. They either spoke English at some level already, but they wanted to, if they didn't speak it, they wanted to speak it. So language was not a barrier, uh, wouldn't have to be a barrier. So those were kind of the, the big issues. And then we needed to give our students a heart for what God was doing in the world. That was really very, very critical for us to do that. So those are those were the big things. There were no options. No options. Inconceivable. Isn't that amazing when we think about that, of where we've come? So here's John. God's given him a heart for the nations. He's beginning to feel the pulse of God's heart beating for the nations. And there are no options. There's no ways to send students. I think for those of us that are thinking about it in 2023, at this point in time, you know, most years we have more people on the field that want a team than what we can supply. And there's other organizations sending teams and state conventions are sending people and students and like that's become a big thing. But it wasn't in 19 early 90s. It wasn't really an option. These guys had to work super hard just to get someone to let them send a team. Now, 
We're going to leave John there. Let's jump back into Bob's story again. When did you start thinking about the nations, making disciples of all nations, mission trip? How did that get started? Did you do any, I don't think, did you do any of that as a college of man yourself? How did that come into your ministry? Uh, well, that's a that's a great question. When I was a junior, Max Barnett gave me a copy of a small book, I still have it, called Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret. Oh, I love that book. That's a great book. God used it in my life as well. If you haven't read Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret, you need to go get a copy of that. If you need something to whet your appetite, Brad and I did a little mini-series on Hudson Taylor's life. You can find it in Season 3, Episodes 19, 20, and 21. Okay, back to Bob and his description of Hudson Taylor and how God built a heart for the nations in him. It was written in the 1920s by Hudson Taylor's son, who is a physician, and his wife. I read that book about Taylor going to China when he was 21, giving his life, trusting God to reach the Chinese in the interior part of China, not in the treaty ports, but in the interior. And after I read that book, I just wept. I couldn't believe the world was out there like I did in reading that book. I began to pray for China, and that was in 1968, and God laid China on my heart. You couldn't get into China then the first time any Westerner got in. America sent a ping pong group there in 70 or 71, and then Richard Nixon followed that in 72, I think. And that was, there was no one in China when I began to pray for China. No Westerners, anyway. There was a bunch of hidden Christians, obviously, but uh, they were deeply persecuted. A lot of them were martyred. Through the years, that's been a lot of the thread in my life, praying for China. And I met John, who began One Link, and he had a heart. He was a campus minister at the time, but led to start One Link. He had a heart for the unreached people groups, and I did too, because I'd been praying for China since 68. And so it's definitely on my heart. And I remember praying at the time that, boy, God, if you would ever allow that, I would just be so honored that I could be a part. I, I have trouble talking about it now, frankly. But uh, in 95, the opportunity opened. John wanted to make a trip there just to, to see the land, the lay of the land, and invited me. And I, I was like a kid in a candy store for that four months leading into that trip. I had a calendar. I was counting off the days. I was sure my passport was up to speed in my inoculations, and I was way ahead of the game. <laughs> there was no waiting on Bob Anderson to get his stuff done before. The day we left, I I was just like stunned that I was going to China. We spent 17 days there and went to, I think, eight cities. The last one was in northern China. That was where the door opened for me to take a group back there for a lot of part of the summer. We stayed a lot longer than, than the groups do now. It was, it was close to two full months. We went into a, a city that was one of the top 10 unreached cities in the world at the time. 
We went to a campus. There were no believers. And the stakes were incredibly high for us. And yet God showed up and just incredible what God has done through that trip. Was that your first time taking a team from your campus? Yes, overseas? it okay. was. Yeah, we, uh, well, I'd, I'd made a mission trip to Monterey, Mexico years earlier. And Brett, Jan, and I led a group to uh, Zambia in Africa in 1980. So I'd done a few things. And we had had a few students go here and there to England and to Africa, but never in this serious of context. Okay. That's got John moving towards the nations, Bob moving towards the nations. Let's listen in on Brett and how God brought that about in his life and his ministry. Because, you know, one of the things that we're discovering is that if a campus minister has a heart for the nations, they will send students no matter what obstacles come in their way. But if they don't have a heart for the nations, it doesn't matter how easy, how important, how much work you do to try to mobilize them. If they don't believe that God loves the nations or if God's not working on their heart to love the nations, nothing's going to happen. And so during those years, you know, we're just trying to witness to people at K-State and Nebraska and help them figure out how to follow Jesus and build a foundation. And in 1977, 78, was when the global thing kind of kicked in to Bob and I both. I, I was down in this basement having a quiet time, and I was reading Psalm chapter 2, verse 8, and it says, Ask of me, and I will give the nations as your inheritance the very ends of the earth as your possession. And that verse just really struck me. And I was meditating on it, and I felt like God said, Well, are you going to? And it's like, going to what? Are you going to ask me? And it's like, okay, well, God, I ask you to give us the nations and the very ends of the earth as an inheritance. And I think at that point, I began, Bob and I had a close relationship, and he, he kind of joined me in that prayer. And I began to pray that through people we would disciple in Lincoln, that they would end up impacting every continent on earth. That Lincoln, Nebraska is just a point on a map. And it's not a very big city, 300,000 people. It And it's nothing anybody wants to come to unless there's a football game. In the past few years, they haven't even come to that, although the stadium still fills up. But my, the vision God gave me was that from this one point, if you're faithful to me, you disciple people, you train them, I will send them to the nations. When I stepped away from leading the campus ministry, I, I did an assessment of what I had had a front row seat to see God do. And over 50 people had been for two years career or six to ten weeks had been to the nations and when i came here no one had ever been across the missouri river it was, was kind of like the agriculture hub with intact in families 
that, you know, you had to cut ties to leave here because it's a place where you, you grew up here and you stayed here. And I was able to see God turn people loose to go to the nations. And it, and so that was in 1980, Bob and I, you hey, can hold see on, the- uh, Hold on one second. Let me yeah. back up and get just a little historical context for me or for us. So about this time, what did your, how big was your ministry? You'd been there 10 yeah, years, I, maybe? We've 12, been there eight? five years. Five years. Five okay. years I got the verse. And it was eight years before we sent our first team overseas. And Bob's ministry was always larger than mine. But our ministry here, probably in that era, was 30 to 50 students, something like that. Had you built that up pretty well from like there was nothing when you started or was there like a little I small didn't core? Start from scratch. I didn't start from scratch. I started from itch. <laughs> it is right before scratch. There was no one here that I knew, college student relating to a Baptist church or anyone I had contact with. And to give context to whoever's listening to this, when I came here, there were 30 Southern Baptist churches in the entire state of Nebraska. And Nebraska is 500 miles wide. And there were 30 Southern Baptist churches. And now there are under 60 Southern Baptist churches in the entire state. So this is not at all like Oklahoma City, where on the east side of town, you probably have more than 60 Baptist churches. So Bob and I, in 1980, you can see the uh, giraffe behind me on the so in 1980, we went to Zambia and Malawi in Central and Southern Africa. And we took 13 students for 10 weeks. And at that, we learned that's too long. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and we went there to reach young people. That was how the International Mission Board welcomed us to come and they up to that point they hadn't sent out any teams they did everything with individuals a summer mission one summer missionary whatever but bob got to put it on bob and my heart that we would do a team of people it just made more sense from both a discipling point of view and a cultivating back on campus the whole idea of putting yeast in the leaven to say we want a culture that's global in our campus ministry. That was totally a life-changing experience for both of us and for each of the students. We've, we've had reunions where the students come back together. Some of them entered ministry, but most of them weren't. They're lay folks who still have a burden for the nations and still are involved in either going or giving praying for sure. And so when we came back from that, it was just like this. This was really good for both sides, because when we left, the missionary said, they said, we don't know how we're going to follow up on all these young people that you're reaching because we're targeting these villages and not young people. We said, well, what if we left somebody there for a year? 
And they said, okay. So we left John and Priscilla Sab in Zambia for one year. They were married. They had one child. And they stayed for one year. And then, then they, when they came back to the States, did seminary, they went back and spent their career in Africa. They started from those young people, they started three churches in Zambia. And they, they watched over and cared for those folks. So it was a win for the people overseas, and it was a win for us. And we maintained relationships with folks, and we would then send, in fact, our state convention developed a partnership with Zambia, Zambia and Malawi and began to send church folks and other folks over to help them. We had journeymen who would go and spend two years there. So it was a an ongoing relationship for maybe five to 10 years, but it was definitely life-changing. And that's kind of where we were in 1980, just kind of excited about what's next. And through that, we had journeymen that started to, to be raised up in our ministry. At that point in time, everything was a pretty good experience, other than you figured out the, the lead. You didn't, you didn't need to be there that long. And I understand, if I remember right, you left a wife and two kids at home for that 10 weeks. Oh, yeah. I'm still paying for that. Yeah. <laughs> she deserves she deserves extra, extra rewards in heavens for that. Oh, yeah. For <laughs> sure. She collects still occasionally. Remember when? Uh, <laughs> I had two children. Bob left two kids. I left two kids with our spouses. They really paid a price while we were gone. And I don't think we realized how difficult that would be for them to be single moms for 10 weeks because we didn't have any family nearby, no one to help except church folks. Yeah, so that was that was a wonderful thing. In fact, in 1986, six years later, uh, I took I watched the kids while Mary went to India on a trip with a guy named Kevin, and I don't know if you've ever heard of Kevin. Once or twice. He's, yeah, he's, he's kind of known around here. <laughs> yeah, so Kevin uh, was one of our former students. He was on that Zan on that Africa team. He was a journeyman then for two years in Liberia, Africa. And then when he was on staff with me here, he put together a team to go to India for 10 days, two weeks, something like that. And Mary got to go on that trip to India. Yeah, so our our life, our family, our children, both of our children were journeymen, two daughters, one to Scotland, one to East Asia. So not only did it infect our ministry, it infected our family. And Bob had a daughter who went to East Asia. So it it's like it became part of our DNA as followers of Jesus to go out. Now, I want to sort of turn the corner here. I've, everything I've said is positive so far. But in 1989, I had a really difficult experience. And at the end of this experience, I told one of my key guys, when we were overseas, I said, I'm never taking a team overseas again. And he said, oh, I can just hear him with a pleading voice. He said, oh, Brett, don't say that. 
I said, no, I'm, I'm not. I've had it. I'm done. What happened is that we took a team, I think it was a mixed team from several campuses, and we took them, and again, sometimes the experience is a good school, but the tuition is extremely high. And uh, so this was high tuition. We spent three weeks in Hong Kong and three weeks in South Korea. And no one told us the difference between those two cultures. And so our three weeks in Hong Kong, we did English camps at these uh, in Hong Kong with students. And I mean, our students just loved the culture. You know, we were on an island with 50 Chinese students teaching them. Then we take a ferry back. And, you know, it was just a, kind of an idyllic situation, just wonderful. And there began to be a fracture in the team. One of the girls who went from here, her father was very ill with cancer when she he, she left. And she was just so afraid he was going to die while she was gone. And so there were several things in just the, the complexion of the team that were not dealt with before we left. And, you know, where we were staying, it was hardship. There was no air conditioning. We slept under mosquito nets. There was, you know, it's, Hong Kong's very tropical. And the food, we didn't have any American food. And it was camp food, Chinese camp food. <laughs> and... uh there was, everything was a squatty potty and there was no hot water. In fact, you didn't want hot water. It's so hot there. So there were numerous things we were just not at all prepared for. And so the whole level of griping and complaint just began to escalate over a three week period. Then when we went to South Korea, it was a completely different culture. In, in China at the time, in Hong Kong, you built relationship and built trust, and then you would share the gospel through that. But in Korea at that time, South Korea, and I understand things have changed terribly for the worse in South Korea. When you'd meet somebody, the first question you'd ask is, are you a Christian? And depending on their response, you'd start talking about the gospel. First time, total stranger not developing any kind of rapport together. So that was a curveball. Plus, the Korean food was totally different from China. And we stayed in different settings. And the complaints got so high that there was like a group fight that looked like you put five cats in a shower and turned on the water. <laughs> and it was primarily the women on the team and the guys are kind of like mm, okay but the girls were just <sighs> mary and i took our daughters so we had two one preteen and one teenage daughter with us who joined in the <sighs> the fight <laughs> <laughs> And that's why in 1989, I just said, this is not for me. 
you know, I'm not going to be involved. And we had a, you know, I mean, in terms of the fruit of that experience, it was really good for the local folks. But when we came back stateside, we had students not talking to each other. And it wasn't good on this side. I'm never doing it again. Can you imagine that? Brett Yawn. The Brett Yawn, who has been so instrumental in OneLink and has been so instrumental in our training and has sent so many teams, he was thinking, I'll never do this again. Now, thankfully, that's not the end of the story. We're going to see how God uh, works in using one of the other gentlemen that we're interviewing here to help change him and get him back on track. That's not where God ends his story, but it is where we're ending the podcast today. Next week, we're going to jump back in with John and see how God begins moving him towards leaving campus ministry and beginning this organization that we now call OneLink. Catch you guys later. So appreciate you all for listening. Thanks. Thank you.